part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. It's one of, going to be one of those rare times that we look at several different passages this morning. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. And uh, if you're new to our church, we're pretty much expository preachers. We take a book of the Bible and we kind of start at the beginning and we finish at the end. And uh, kind of week by week look at that. This is going to be a little bit different and yet we will go through uh, kind of a, a time frame of the seven last sayings of Christ upon the cross. And this is all in light of just kind of capturing not just kind of the mood of Easter, but really focusing on what is this message of the cross that Paul talked about. Now, please don't judge me for this, but uh, one of my favorite movies is Braveheart. I've actually probably shared about that once or twice before, and uh, I just love the movie. And probably one of the most dramatic moments in that movie of Braveheart is when they take William Wallace, you know, at the end, and he's so desperate and so longing for Scotland to be free. And they capture him, and they kind of get him all tied up, and, and they say, okay, now look, if you recant, we will give you a quick death. If you don't, if you don't, if you you know, if you continue to be just stubborn in your ways here, it's going to be a very long, painful death. And if you've seen that movie, um, uh, it's at the end they are going to draw and quarter him. They're going to do a lot of different things. I'm not going to go into the description of all the things before they actually behead him, and they give him opportunity after opportunity to kind of go back and, and say that he's sorry and kind of recant and do all that. And through it all, he's just silent. And uh, finally, at the very end, you know, it kind of builds up to this moment. And uh, they're, they're going to do all these hideous things to him. And they continue to, to draw him and try to quarter him and, and all that. He's in extreme pain. And finally, he does have a word. And if you've seen that movie at the end, he just yells out the one word, freedom. Now, I bring that up this morning, not because it's one of my favorite movies, but because uh, it really does demonstrate that there's heroics that come in the second and there's heroics that come through persistence. That is, your eyes on the prize. There are some things in life that you respond to almost in a reactionary way that just in that moment, you, maybe you get enough adrenaline and you can do even a heroic thing in a moment. Somebody burst in here right now? There, there'd be several people that would stand up and maybe heroically try to take down somebody that was going to try to come in and do harm to us here. Ricky just came through the door right when I said that. So, you know, uh, Cliff, was, Cliff was ready. Cliff was ready to go back there and, and tackle him there. Um, but, you know, in that moment that you really don't have time to fully process, you kind of just respond. That is one type of heroic action. There's another heroic action that we see a little bit of there in those last frames of Braveheart where there, it's contemplative. Okay, you have opportunity time and time again under duress to turn the other way and to get the easier way out. What you know this morning that when we see these seven saints of Christ on the cross, folks, this has been a three-year ministry. It has been 30-plus years of life heading in this direction. And if we really understand the theology of the Bible, even before the creation of the world, this was his call. And what we see in Christ as he responds is not this, you know, last minute kind of heroic, okay, I'm going to say one thing and then I'm going to die. No, what we see is the consistency of what he has been doing his entire ministry, 
what we see before that creation of the world, that he has his eye on the prize, and that he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to lay down his life for all those that would put their trust and belief in him. That's a different kind of heroic action. It comes at cost. It comes with distraction. It comes at a place where there's a lot of outside things coming in, and you're not just responding by the adrenaline. You very much are responding in a conscious purposeful way. Now, I want that kind of be the stage because I want you to understand that as we go through these seven different sayings over the next three weeks, that that it really isn't just this moment of heroic action, but that everything that Christ says, this message of the cross, has been consistent in Christ his whole life. I'll, I'll read a quote a little bit later on of what Charles Spurgeon said that. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, you know, talks about just how the consistency of the life of Jesus Christ. But I want to go first to, uh, you can stay in Luke, chapter 23. But the Apostle Paul said this. He was preaching to the Corinthians, writing to them. And the Corinthians were a very brilliant people. They were very, very smart. They had a lot of philosophy. When you think of, you know, Greek philosophy and that, that's who these people were. They really did love knowledge. They loved intellect. If anything, they kind of adored intellect. And um, this is what Paul said to these people that adored intellect. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross, in the NIV it says the message of the cross. For the word of the cross, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The NIV would say it's foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Now, what did Paul mean by that? What is this message of the cross? And why would there be some that would say that just looks like foolishness? We just sing three songs, guys, about the cross. And I don't know about you, but, man, every time that we were singing more and more about the cross and what Christ did, his sacrificial death for us, it endeared my heart. It made me want to sing more about this beautiful cross, even though it's a tragic cross. That's the thing we're going to see in our Good Friday service is that, you know, you, you have this beauty and yet you have this tragedy because we, we see a death there and we see a very painful death. And at the same time, it is our salvation. It is the very work that God produced in Christ, that Christ willingly keeps his eye on that prize the whole time and his whole ministry is oriented toward that and he never goes out of step of completing his calling. Paul said some people look at that and, and they say foolish. He said other people look at that and go, man, that is the very power by which I live. Now I want you to understand that what he's saying there isn't, okay, the them and the us. He's not just saying, yes, it is, those, those that do not know Christ, that have not put their faith and trust in being reconciled to a holy God, they're putting their faith and trust in what the finished work of Christ. It is, in one way, those people and the people that have not trusted Christ. But it's not quite like you looking at the Super Bowl and some people going, okay, I like New England Patriots, and other people say, I hate the New England Patriots, okay? It, that's kind of a whole different kind of, okay, two sides. This isn't really two sides that you're just in favor of one person. Instead, No, it's the understanding what happened on the cross. He said it's very foolish to some people because they just don't get it. 
To others, he said, man, they, they look at the painful death. They look at all the tragedy. They look at all that's going on there. And, and yet they're attracted and say, this is the very power by which I live. This morning, as we begin to open up, we begin to look at what is this message of the cross. As we go through Luke and some other passages, I wish there was one passage that we could go to and it would just have all seven sayings, but that's not how the Bible was recorded. We actually have to do what we call the harmony of the Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the harmony of the Gospels is when we take all that those writers have put and we kind of put them together and we say, okay, here's a comp- more complete picture. Some things that Mark covered, John didn't. Some things that, that uh, Matthew wrote down, Luke didn't put down. But when we look at all of them together, we really do get kind of a play of these seven saints. Now, I'll tell you right up front that we do not know exactly and there is some discussion, even some debate, about the order that these were set in, okay? So we're going to handle them in a certain way. And if you say, well, I just think that he said this before that, more power to you, okay? I, I, I'm not here to debate the order of that. We know a little bit of the order just because we can tell that by the harmony of the Gospels. But because it is a harmony of the Gospels and we don't have a direct timeline, we don't know that... First saying, second saying, third saying, fourth saying, all the way through the seventh saying. We're going to handle them one way. And hopefully that's the way that, that, that probably was the order. It's the one that I definitely think was kind of more of, of uh, the, the actual order that they were set in. And this morning we're going to cover the first two. Because what we do see is that from the very beginning we begin to see that there is this call upon Christ to pronounce very much his whole reason for being there. Not that they demand it, but we just see that that's his heartbeat. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the ministry of Christ, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and and the message of Christ is getting out. He's calling them to a message of repentance. Turn away from their own selves and turn to God. Did anybody remember what John the Baptist said when Christ walks on the scene? It's okay if you don't remember that exactly, but behold the Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, that is John the Baptist, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. Before, this isn't something that's kind of evolving, that you're feeling one way this day, and then as your, your definition gets more... Let me put it this way. How many of you, because we're going through this with my, my girls right now, one girl just... Uh, I have a one-month-old grandbaby. I've got another one coming at the end of August. And so parenthood is brand new to them. They've read the books. They knew everything. And immediately, my daughter said, uh, after she gave birth, she goes, I know nothing. Okay, and, and they're in the I know nothing stage right now. It's like, okay, read the books. I think I kind of have this down. I have a lot of facts. But all of a sudden, this is real. I've got a little baby now. It's no longer theory. Now it's actual practice. There's a development. Would you agree, parents, that there was a developmental process? You were parents the whole time, but there was a developmental process that went on from the birth of your first child to their maturation. And even if, especially, listen, where's the Eastmans? We've got to go to our ones that have four or five, six kids. Okay? Each child would be a little bit different. That Your parents on day one, okay? The title of the role of parents is there. And I apologize, guys. The, our mic is acting up, and I will try to stay very still this morning. Um, 
But your, your understanding of parenthood, how many of you that our parents said that it was kind of a progressive thing? Just kind of raise your hand. Yeah. Christ's understanding of him being the Savior was not progressive. Before the foundation of the world, Christ knew what he was coming to do, his purpose. He didn't evolve into it. He didn't start his ministry going, you know, I just want to do a lot of good deeds, kind of want to help people, a miracle or two. Hey, a leper or two, I can heal them. A blind man or two, a lame man, I'll do this. It was not progressive, guys. From the very beginning, he knows his role, and John the Baptist proclaims that role. Here's the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. And so for three years, he's progressing on that. Like a laser target, he's progressing toward the cross. That's really important for us to understand because I want you to know that this isn't something that took on Christ. No, Christ took on the cross, okay? The cross isn't kind of like, okay, back here and he may end up there or not. No, his whole purpose, he's the Lamb of God. For what purpose? To take away the sins of the world. That begins an understanding of this consistency of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, I, I told you there was a, a great quote from him. He says it this way. Christ's life is all of a piece, just as the alpha and the omega are letters of the same alphabet. You do not find him one thing at one at first, another thing afterwards, and a third thing still later. But he is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. There is a wondrous similarity about everything that Christ said and did. He never, uh, you never need to write the name Jesus under any of the sayings that he had because you know that these are the things that are not of human writers. These are the things that only he could have said. And he goes on in, in that context as he was preaching that sermon, talking about just the consistency of Christ. I want you to see this because, again, this is not a moment of heroic kind of, okay, get your adrenaline together, let's do it for the team. This is a consistent thought throughout his life. Now, with that in mind, let's go to Luke chapter 23. By this time, Christ has uh, been arrested. He has had mock trials. You can count as many as five mock trials. Some would point to four, but there's been times that he's been, you know, the the judgment was already going to be there. That's why we call them mock trials. Now they have put him on the cross. They have nailed him to the cross. And we begin this scene with Christ on the cross and these sayings coming from him in the the time frame that he's there. Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 33. And when they had come to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. These words were from a man who had just been beaten probably beyond what most men would have been able physically to take. Many men in that day would have died and succumbed to the beating that Christ had had in those days. And here he is, a man who had been spit upon and rejected. The Bible says that it's one thing, you know, it's one thing to call me a name. It's another thing to mock me. But you, would you consider that mocking is kind of worse than just being called a name? And yet it said that they mocked him, mocked that he was the Christ, mocked everything that he truly was, and they mocked that. It wasn't just that they were calling him names. 
They were mocking the very role that he was playing, that he was the savior of the world. And they began to mock him by saying, okay, you saved others, now save yourself. See, that's worse than just saying, you're a liar, you're a thief. You're not really the savior. That's one thing. But to mock the very purpose that you have been destined for your entire being, before the foundation of the world, three years of ministry, like a laser target, you're headed to the cross, and yet that's what they're mocking All these things are happening, and yet what do we see is the response of Christ. He prays for them. He doesn't just say, I forgive you. What does he say? What's the first word? He prays for them. Now, if we go back in his ministry, he said, okay, here's one of the things that's going to be one of the most challenging things that I ever ask you to do. I want you to pray for your enemies. Not just be nice to people but I want you to actually pray for your enemies. And here he's demonstrating that. He's not just saying, okay, guys, I forgive you. No, he said, Father, forgive them. And then he says, for they know not what they do. It's rare that in, usually this is me talking and you listening, but anybody have a clue of what that means? I'm, I'm giving permission. It's not that they don't understand what they're doing. They're crucifying somebody. They, they, perhaps many of those were there at that trial and were the ones yelling out to you, crucify them. They don't understand who they are killing. I mean, he certainly has made no mistake about who he is. He's the Savior of the world. He's the very Son of God. And yet they have not heard. Now, folks, do not believe in this old thing that, okay, I'm not really guilty if I'm ignorant of the facts. Explain that to the officer, okay? You go down this highway, you don't see a, a, a speed limit sign, and you decide you want to go 85 miles an hour down this road. He's not going to buy the fact that you said, well, you know, I didn't see a, a speed limit. He's going to go, you should have known. You should have known that it was not 85 miles an hour. Ignorance of the law, Mr. Lawyer, ignorance of the law is not a defense, is it? Okay, good. <laughs> And so he's not saying, okay, they don't know what they're doing. They get off free because they don't know. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They know what they're doing. They're crucifying something. They just don't understand the enormity of it. They don't understand what they really are doing, that that I truly am. They have not accepted that I am the Son of God. And yet in all this abuse, in all this, he, he says, Father, forgive them. Look on verse 35 to 38. Nobody in this picture is saying, I'm sorry. Nobody looks upon it when they start to to crucify him and says, you know, maybe we were wrong. Let's rethink this. Nobody, if anything, they're just hurling more and more insults. Verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. He's the Christ of God, the chosen one. Well, Pastor, I thought you just said that they didn't really know who he was. No, he's identifying himself that he's the Christ of God. He's the Savior of the world. They just have not truly accepted that he is. They're even using that now to mock him. You say that you're the Savior. <laughs> Go ahead and save yourself. This is why it's not a momentary heroics, guys. 
mean, you want to cut out the heroics in my life? Start mocking me. I don't know, I can't speak for the ladies, but men, there's a certain amount of pride that we have. And again, you can kind of say this about us, you can kind of do this, but if you start mocking us, that's kind of a point that you're going to get a reaction. And yet what we see, that even though he is fully human, he is fully God. His laser focus on this cross and what he's called to do, he doesn't respond to them. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Everybody here, it's a big game. Verse 37, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription of him, this is the king of the Jews. Everything about this picture is one of mockery. The very one who's come to save the world from their sin is being mocked in that very, it's not, okay, you have an ugly brother, He's not saying, okay, you were never really good at baseball. You know, these weren't just kind of jeers. They're mocking the very thing that he's coming to do and the very action that he's taking place at that moment. Does that make sense? It's one thing to say, Bobby, you're ugly and you smell bad. It's another thing to go to the Savior world in the, in the moment that he has seen the world, that he's actually on the cross, and that he's actually going through the act of salvation, or that's going to bring salvation to us, that they would mock the very thing that he's doing. Do you understand how deep that is? How offensive that is? I mean, if it's anybody but Christ, they're going, enough, I'm out of here. And yet, what is the response of our Savior, guys? He prays for him. Theory gets into practice really, really quick. I'm a great theoretician. I mean, I can do theory all day long. This is what I should do. It's that whole practice part. In, in life group this morning with the young families group, we're talking about you know Christ, uh, how God has called us in our roles in marriage. And we're going, okay, we get the theory part. The theory part's pretty easy to understand. It's the whole practice part that's really difficult. And Melissa, I, I appreciate you pointing out. And I said, why is this? And she goes, because we're sinners. <laughs> we're kind of broken people. Yeah, exactly. I'm kind of, yes. <laughs> you know, we're working with broken stuff here. It's not that we can't have the theory down. It's the practice part. But please understand. Jesus turns theory into practice, guys. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to save you from your sins. And in the moment that they mock the very thing that he's doing, when they're hurling insults, not you're ugly and you smell bad, but when they're actually saying, okay, you say you're the Savior, then save yourself. Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. An amazing love. Now, why is that so important? Because there's going to be times in your life, guys, that you're going to struggle with, well, I know that God can forgive a lot of things, but I don't know that God can forgive this or God can forgive that. seems like Satan really has one or two things in his arsenal of our past that he wants to bring up kind of time and time again. And we run to the cross and we're, okay, God, will you forgive me of this? And God forgives. If we're sincere and we really truly give it to God and say, God, will you forgive me this? And he forgives. 
And it's a permanent forgiveness. And yet somehow, some of those things from our past, would you agree, kind of get back into our mind and our heart and want to cause a little bit of distance, may have put a wall between us and our Savior? One of the things I want you to understand, in the face of adversity, in the face of theory becoming practice, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I know what they're doing. There's nothing you could ever do that in your sincere coming to Christ and going, God, will you forgive this, that that he will not forgive. But the message doesn't end there. It it is a message of forgiveness, but but look what happens. Look at verse uh, 35. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, you know, he saved himself. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 39. Skip down a little bit. Verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged uh, railed at him, saying, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so remember, there's two, there's two prisoners on each side, two thieves. They've done sinful things. They deserve what they're getting. And, and one of them cries out and says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And now this is a pretty famous line. Jesus replies to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now what just happened, guys? you got two thieves. And Christ is dying. They are dying. And one yells out as they hear the crowd. And they said, okay, if, if you really are this Savior, if you really are, have the ability to, to save, save yourself. And while you're doing it, since we're kind of your buddies right here on each side, save us. The thief on the other side says, Man, what, do, you know, do you know what you're saying? Paul's answer to that, according to 1 Corinthians, would be no, he doesn't. He said, don't you understand that we, we're hanging justly? Well, we did a crime, and, and this is what we have to pay for that crime. And so we're here, and, and even though we don't like it, and even though it's going to lead to our death, we will die, but we will die a just death for our crime. Do you not realize that this guy has not done anything? And he turns to Christ and basically asks for a, a, a point where you remember me. I see that there is something different, and it gave him hope. The cross is a message of forgiveness, but it's a message of hope. This guy has nothing to give. A lot of times when we come to Christ, when we offer our lives to Christ, as we come and say, okay, I surrender my life. We sing songs. We sing songs this morning. I surrender my life to you. It's almost as if we feel like we really do have something to offer Christ. Please understand, and, and this is, I, I'm not trying to be silly. I'm not trying. Folks, we have nothing to offer Christ except for our sin. And I don't say that as bumper sticker theology because you know how I hate bumper sticker theology. 
I say that because we really don't have anything. Even if we would sell the seas and go tell people about Christ, really, in, in place of our sin, that is nothing to offer a holy God. There is nothing in God's nature that needs us. There is everything within our nature that needs God. This thief, he doesn't go off to theology school. He doesn't go into the temple. He doesn't go and find out more. He doesn't read some good commentaries. He doesn't read an article on the Internet and find out. He just sees for his own life. Man, we deserve what we get. He doesn't. I think he really is the Savior of the world. And he turns to him, and there's really in this proclamation. I mean, look at the proclamation that he makes. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is he professing? That Jesus has a kingdom. He is who he says that he is. He may not have prayed a sinner's prayer. He may not have been, but he says, when you come into your kingdom, because I, I can tell you, you've brought hope to my hopeless life, I, will you remember me? Jesus turns today. Today. You'll be with me in paradise. You don't have time to go out there and earn anything. You don't have time to go out there and prove your love. You've just placed your faith in who I am and what I'm doing. And today, he'll be rewarded. Well, you might say, well, that's a really good story. I I like that because, Bobby, it shows that there are some people that are going to look upon Christ and and find the Savior, and there's going to be other people that don't. And so there's kind of two mix of people. That's kind of what Paul was saying. Some people see, some people don't. Here's the hope part, guys. All we have to do is back up just a little bit again, the harmony of the Gospels. And we look over in Matthew, because Luke doesn't tell us this part, but Matthew tells us, what this thief who just said, hey, when you come into your kingdom today, will you take me with you? This was not his story just 30 minutes, maybe an hour before. Matthew chapter 27, verse 38 and following. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. I've always thought that was, you know when you wag your head? Is that like one of the most repulsive things that you could do to the Savior? Yeah. Can you imagine doing that to God? Oh my, can, if your seven-year-old child did that to you, they're not going to see eight. <laughs> hey, Mom. The depth of rebellion, the, the depth of the attack here, guys. Please, please try to capture some of it. This is the, they're, they're wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You, you said you were going to destroy the temple, build it back up in three days. You can't even save yourself. Go ahead, try to do it. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So all the chief priests... The scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Okay, we've read that before. We've just read that in Luke. But look at this last two places. Uh, Verse 43 and 44. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Verse 44. 
You read it. The robbers who were crucified, left and right, both guys, also did what? Revile him. The cross, guys, is a message of forgiveness, but what a message of hope. This guy, just an hour before, 30 minutes before, we don't have a time frame, we don't know, but he is one of the ones that's deriding. He's one of the ones that's mocking. He's one of the ones that's just joining in there. And then in that experience, as he sees the nature of Christ, as he sees who Christ is, he comes to this other place that we just read about when he says, why are you saying this? Don't you know that we're hanging here justly, but he hangs here unjustly? He's done nothing. Hey, when you come into your kingdom today, will you remember me? The message of the cross is one of forgiveness. It's it's one of hope. I I trusted Christ when I was 12 years old. I've shared that a lot. And, And I can truly say that up to 12 years old, I didn't have a long list in my own mind of grievous sins where God just wouldn't, you know, take me. That was in my own mind. The problem is as we get older and older, as we get into our 20s and 30s and 40s, and we begin to, to live life and maybe make some choices that we know. We're not even pleased with the choices, much less we think that God's pleased with those choices. And, and it can stay right there with us so much that it keeps us from really seeing the beauty of this cross. And we really do begin to wonder, okay, I know that God can forgive that and God can forgive that, but can God forgive this? And we begin to lose that hope that there really is a hope for us and a Savior for us. Uh, Please put that to death, that thought. If you're here this morning and you are 90 years old, if you're 100 years old, and you had lived a life of pure hell all your life and nothing but just terrible actions. And yet you heard the beauty of the forgiveness of Christ this morning. And you said, you know, I need that hope in my life. Then today is the day of, can be the day of your salvation. This is the hope of the gospel. Let me close with this. Mickey Mantle, ever heard his name? There's a man, there was a, a Mickey Mantle played center field for the Yankees during a lot of the championship years. And, and um, there's a guy on the team, Bobby Richardson, that played second base and uh, witnessed to him. Bobby was a faithful Christian and uh, Bobby was always trying to tell Mickey Mantle about Christ. And because they were good friends, Mickey was kind of, you know, obliged him and everything, but, but just led really kind of a, a kind of a rebellious life. And so even after they retired and they got longer in years, the relationship was there and they would still talk to each other. And especially Bobby Richardson's wife would call up Mickey Mantle from time to time and be kind and loving and all that and says, okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you more about Jesus. <laughs> and she was persistent. Many, a few years ago, Mickey Mantle passed away and, and the weeks and months before then, uh, doctors didn't give him hope. He, he was going to die. And Bobby Richardson and his wife called and 
just like they always had for years and years and years and years. And told him about Christ. And then came in this thing was, you know, guys, it's two outs in the bottom of the ninth. <laughs> it's too late. And they told him about this man. And Bobby tells the story how Mickey Mantle placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, they, 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 uh, I think they showed his funeral on national television. Uh, Bobby Richard is, is the one that did the, the funeral and everything. Now that's between Mickey and God. I, I, all I can take is what a man says in his heart that he put his faith and trust in him. I certainly don't think that Bobby Richardson, because he is such a, a dedicated man of God, would try to persuade any other way because he had such a heavy burden for his friend. I just know this, guys, that when we look at this message of the cross, it can be two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Because it's not dependent on how, what you can do for God. It's all dependent on what God has done for you. An hour before, verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. I don't know how much time went past. Hey, don't you know who this is? Hey, today, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the message of the, the gospel. A message of forgiveness and a message of hope. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, we um, Father, there's a part of me that, that can't quite comprehend all that, that went on in the mind and the heart of this thief that is there. And Father had led a rebellious life his whole entire life. And Father comes to know you, put faith and trust in who your son is at that last moment. But I thank you, God. I thank you, God that even with two outs in the bottom of the ninth, that you long to bring us into your family, that you long, Father, you search out the one and leave the 99, Father, to bring the one home. Father, this morning, anyone who's been really dealing with a, uh, a sincere lack of being able to, to forgive to understand your forgiveness. Father, will you show them this morning the laser focus that Christ had, that in the midst of all this physical, emotional suffering that was going on, that he turned to you and he said, Father, forgive them. That, Father, he extended eternal life to a thief who had no time to go out and prove himself. And yet he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Father, this is the hope of the gospel. This message of forgiveness, this message of hope. And we thank you for it today, Father. We love you. And we thank you, Father, for uh, what you have accomplished on the cross. So that, Father, as we sing of the cross in these days to come, Father, that, yes, we see tragedy there, but, Father, let us glory in this gift that you have given us that would, Christ would die for us so that we would know you forever and live with you forevermore. Father, we sing this closing song 
as just a, a profession and a confession of our belief in you and the beauty of this cross. We love you, Father, and we thank you for Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.